This time of year, as you're driving around town, it's fairly common to see soccer teams out on the practice fields. And that, as I see that for me personally, I go back in my memory to years gone by when I was coaching my son's teams and what that was, what that was like, what that entailed. Young players, young players need to be reminded again and again and again. You, you just don't graduate uh, from this need of the fundamentals, the very fundamentals of the game, uh, how to dribble, how to pass, uh, how, to, how to trap, how to shoot. Uh, you, they, they, they desperately need not just not so much really at all, not at that stage, not the early years, not the strategies of the game, just the basics of the game, just the, the very, very root essentials uh, of, of the game. And I've been thinking about that over the last few days, and it has occurred to me that there's, there's a parallel there with the need of the young player and the need of the Christian when it comes to prayer. Uh, we never really get past the need for the continual schooling and coaching in the essentials, the fundamentals of what it is to pray. In fact, it's even more so. It's even more so because actually those, little, those young players actually do get better. They do at, at, at some point progress beyond just the basics, just, just so you know. We don't, not when it comes to prayer. We have to be schooled and be brought back to the, I would just say not just um, the fundamentals, but the very fundamentals. So if you're speaking in terms of soccer, it would be like this. This is a ball. When you touch it, it rolls. Oh, those are cleats. No, they don't go on your hands. They go on your feet. It's, it's, I'm, I'm, I know it sounds like I'm being a little whimsical, a little snarky, but it's, it's, it really is that basic, that true, and, and how we keep needing to be brought back to the very essentials, the very fundamentals of what it means to pray. And Jesus, in his goodness to us, speaks right there, speaks right there to us. And we see that in our passage here this morning. Matthew 26, it's where we are uh, this morning. Uh, we're going into the garden, the garden of Gethsemane. Um, Matthew 26, it's the first of the four gospels, the first book of the New Testament. Matthew 26, uh, verses 31 through 46. Um, stirring words, a stirring account. Matthew chapter 26, starting in verse 31. Then Jesus said to them, you will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter answered him, though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Jesus said to him, truly, I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same. And then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane. 
And he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, so could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for giving us a glimpse into the garden. Um, thank you. Thank you for inviting us into the garden. And giving us this opportunity to see some things and hear some things that really are quite astounding. There is so much here, so, so, so much here. When it comes to prayer, we ask that you would help us to see in, in particular some things there. Um, as we hear you, as we watch you, as we take in this whole scene, Make us people of prayer, truly, more than ever before, to know what that means and to live it out. And we pray these things in your name. Amen. So what we just read follows immediately after the Last Supper. So we don't know exactly where within the city precincts uh, that took place, likely somewhere on the southwest corner of the city of Jerusalem. If that be the case, then the disciple Jesus and the eleven are making their way to the southern corner of, of Jerusalem. They're now making their way to the southeastern corner as they're moving east, going down ancient steps into the Kidron Valley, and then proceeding up the western slope of the Mount of Olives. And there they stop in a place called Gethsemane. 
Now, what is that place? It was an olive garden, an olive garden with a press there. Uh, it's not surprising. Um, it's olive presses have been found in the, in that area. Not surprising. It's named the Mount of Olives. Um, Gethsemane actually does mean oil press. It's Aramaic. That's where the word comes from. And uh, the production of, of olive oil was quite the industry back in those days uh, for all kinds of reasons, and it's wide, wide range of usages. And, and it's, it might be helpful to know how you got olive oil. So this is what a press looked like. It was a circular-shaped stone. Pretty good size, at least but this high. And using the, the energy of either a donkey or, or a human, that circular stone was turned upon a flat, circular, horizontal surface where you laid the olives down on that surface. And as that wheel, that, that vertically aligned wheel, moved along that surface, those olives were crushed and the oil went out a groove side of the press where it was collected by some sort of basin. That is highly appropriate, that imagery, in that place of olives being grown and crushed because that in many ways is exactly what is about to happen to Jesus. Crushed. So you go to dark Gethsemane. Uh, some of you may know that's actually the, the words, the opening line of, of an old song uh, by John Montgomery. The words are printed there in, in your quotes and in your bulletin. Uh, Montgomery wrote this back in the, the 1800s. He wrote quite a few other hymns as well. I have to tell you, as I've been immersed in this passage over the last several days, those, the, the lines from that song have just been resonating in, in, in me. And, and in particular, this first stanza that I want to read to you. Go to dark Gethsemane, you who feel the tempter's power. Your Redeemer's conflict see. Watch him with him one bitter hour. Turn not from his griefs away, learn of Jesus Christ to pray. There is such wisdom in those words, and it fits our text so, so beautifully, because it really is true. As we go to dark Gethsemane, we do learn of Jesus Christ to pray. Let's just say that again. It's so plain, so straightforward. As we go to dark Gethsemane, there we do, in fact, learn of Jesus Christ to pray. How so, you ask? As we listen, as we listen to his words to his disciples, and as we listen to his words to his Father, in both, in different ways, we learn of Jesus Christ to pray. So let's look at these two points, very simple points, uh, in, in turn. First, as we listen to his words to his disciples. A great question we could ask, and this gets down back to those very foundation, the, the very foundation, the, the basic essentials of prayer. Why pray? 
You, see, you listen to his words, and you, you really hear what he's saying to his disciples. It gives us all kinds of reasons as to why to pray. So it begin, you begin with this, this clear prediction, what he says to them. And, and what hard words this must have been for them to hear. Earlier that evening, in the context of the Last Supper, he told them that one of them was a traitor. Now, that was really hard for them to hear. Now he's telling them that all of them are going to abandon him, desert him in his greatest hour, his hour of greatest need. How hard this must have been for them to hear. And how then do they respond? With boast, boastful, braggadocious claims of what they will do in that moment, denying what he is just telling them, therein betraying their naivete as far as their own strength and ability to sustain anything. They're exposing their need in that very moment, and ours too. I come back to that, this clear prediction. That right there shows us something as to why we need to pray, our need. And you go a little further. You keep listening. What else does Jesus say? He gives us dark prophecy. These ancient words that he hearkens back to there in verses 31, 32. You will all fall away because of me this night, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. With those words of the, sh the shepherd being struck and the sheep being scattered, Jesus is quoting here from the priest Zechariah from 500 years before. And he's saying right now, in the fullest sense, those words are being fulfilled in what's about to happen to me and what's about to happen to you. Now, 500 years ago, those words were spoken, and now they are being fulfilled completely in truth and you've got to just take a step back and wonder because, you know, I can't tell you what's going to happen tomorrow. You can't, you know, either five minutes, five hours, five days, 500 years. This is a divine power, sovereign power that is at work that can foretell what is going to happen because it is, he has foreordained everything that's going to happen before the beginning of time. Such power, such wisdom, such sovereignty. Again, why should we pray? Our need and the one to whom we go has all things in his hands. No matter how chaotic things seemed in that moment, which they did, we have the assurance, they had the assurance, if they could hear it, which surely they couldn't, that his hand was on the wheel and strong control was there despite how chaotic things look. So you have the clear prediction, you have the, the dark prophecy, you have the stern warning. Why should we pray? Why should we pray? Why should we pray? Well, you get to verses 40 and 41. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, so could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Now think with me here. He is so mindful of their need. He is so mindful of their need despite, you know how hard it is? I mean, I, don't, I can't be kind when I have a headache. I'm the worst when I have a cold, right? It's, it's the man cold, isn't that the thing, right? I'm the poster boy for that, okay? Jesus, think with me. 
despite the trial that he is going through, he's mindful of their need and is speaking to them in that. And despite how miserably already in the midst of this trial, he is fail- they are failing him, he is speaking to their need. Do you see his kindness towards them? His kindness, his tenderness, his grace, his mercy. And even with all that, he also gives them an assurance. You are going to and really already are abandoning me, and I will never abandon you. And in fact, I'm coming back. I'm coming back, and I'm going to meet you where you're going to, back home up in Galilee. Why should we pray? Why should we pray? Because of our need, because of his power, because of his mercy. Any one of those should answer that question. Why should we pray? And we see it all here in Gethsemane. Jesus Jesus knows. Jesus knows. He sees all of this. He sees and knows their need. He sees their foolishness. He sees their ignorance. He sees their... their, um, self-dependency and proneness in that direction, their default, their tendency. Well, that's us. That's us. He sees that. Why pray? We need to. And as we do, we find ourselves in the presence of the one who can do something and who is glad to and merciful towards us. As we go to dark Gethsemane, we learn of Jesus Christ to pray. That's the first point. Just listening in to his words to his disciples. But then we listen in to his words to his Father. And we go further, not just in terms of why to pray, but we learn something more of just who it is we're praying to. So let's go back and read verses 36 to 44 again. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak again. For the second time he went away and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again he came and found them sleeping. Their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same word. Again, Jesus is in the midst of the deepest anguish. No deeper anguish has this world ever seen than that night, than that night in that garden. You, you hear his desire for companionship, right? He tells eight, you stay here at the gate of the wall in the garden and stand guard. You three come with me because I want you near. Now, why? Why does he want them 
near. Well, well, he says, and roughly translated, you could say, my soul is swallowed up in sorrow. I feel as though I'm going to die right now just from that. You hear the anguish in his voice, the longing therein just to have those three with him, Peter, James, and John. But that begs the question, why is he so sorrowful? Why is he so distressed? Why is he coming undone? Because of the cup. Because of the cup. He mentions that. Now, that is so much more not to play this down, the physical side of what he was about to go through, the scourging, horrific. The crucifixion, horrific, not to play that down, but that is not what is making him come apart at the seams. It's beyond the physical, something much, much worse, awful as that all was. I mean, after all, think with me for just a moment. Jesus has been speaking of this again and again and again and again. He's known it was coming. Why is he falling apart now? He's known, I mean, you can say, yeah, well, it's on him now. Okay, fine. Let's go out and come at it from another way. Think about how many other martyrs through the ages have faced their death so bravely, so courageously. Here's Jesus coming apart. Right? Why? Because it was so much more than just the scourging. It was so much more than just the cross. It was the cup. What is the cup? The cup was an Old Testament image for the wrath of God. The wrath of God, the judgment of God being poured out upon the sinful nations. And Jesus knows, he knows better than anyone possibly could what that cup is, what it entails, and then he has to drink it down to the dregs. He has to drain it dry. And that's why he is coming apart. That's the sort of his source of his sorrow. It's not just death, it's the cup. It's not just death, it's the cup. C.S. Lewis's The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. No few of you I know are familiar with this. Um, here's the basic plot line. The Pevensey children, Peter, Susan, Edmund, Lucy, enter into this land called Narnia through a wardrobe. And, and the, the land is under a curse from a witch where it is always winter and, and never Christmas. And Edmund, you may know, is the surly, quarrelsome, proud one who finds himself ensnared by, I'll say, the charms, the spell of the witch, is taken captive by the witch. His three siblings, of course, are angry with him, but they love their brother. They're torn in this. They finally come to meet the great lion, Aslan, and Lucy, sweet Lucy, asks Aslan the question, please, Aslan, can anything be done to save Edmund? All shall be done, said Aslan, but it may be harder than you think. And if you know the way the story unfolds, you know it was very hard indeed especially for Aslan. It's a deep anguish. Jesus is peering right into it. 
And that then leads to this wondrous prayer. Not my will, but yours, which, right, it's echoes of what, how he told us to pray in the Lord's Prayer, right? Which, you think about that, that's almost the disciples' prayer. This is the Lord's Prayer, the one he's praying. Uh, you think, I know it's hard for you to imagine this because we, this is like a, the, the historical fiction, like going off, crazy off the rails, but, you know, Jesus could have refused this. In that moment, in that juncture, there in the garden, he could have said, no. I've got following. I'm going to do like the Maccabeans did just a few decades before. We're going to start a revolution. Take up those swords. Drive out those damn Romans. That's what the Jewish people were thinking. That's what they wanted. He could have refused. Or instead of turning and going back towards the city, he could have just kept going over the Mount of Olives into the desert. It's what David did a thousand years before when Absalom was trying to, well, really did, it was a palace coup. He could have done that. But he refused to refuse. He refused to refuse. He yielded it all. And you see him on his face, on the ground. When else do you see Jesus, the Lord of heaven and earth, on his face, on the ground? But at this moment, pleading. Who does Jesus plead to? My father. Is there another way? And he yields all. He gives all in that wondrous act. Which then takes you to that awful cross, the great exchange, our guilt, our sin, all of that taken upon him, his righteous record, the beauty of that put upon us, the great exchange, the greatest exchange. But in order for that to happen, there had to be that separation between, his, between the Son and the Father. There had to be that wall. There had to be that wail that you hear in Matthew 27. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So back to the question. Why should we pray? To whom do we pray? Do you know who you're praying to? The one who went through all of that for you. The one who went through all of that for you. That's who we pray to. He knows the worst of us, and he went through the worst of all for us. As the author of Hebrews says, therein... He can sympathize. He knows. He can sympathize. He can truly help. He knows what it is to be betrayed. He, he knows what it means to be falsely accused and unjustly treated. He knows what it is to be misunderstood and grossly abused. He knows. He endured it all for you and for me. He knows. That's who we pray to. 
As we go to dark Gethsemane, we learn of Jesus Christ to pray. We learn of Jesus Christ to pray. Think with me in terms of, of, of bookends. You know what bookends are? And I don't mean those things on your shelf that keep your books from falling over. I'm speaking in terms of the plot device that may be going on in, in the middle of some of those books, the beginning and the end, uh, as, as uh, in some of our great, great stories. Let me just read you uh, how to describe this literary device on a website I came across this week. Two of the most critical points in your story are the beginning and the ending. One of the best ways uh, to... to pull those two things together, is to bookend your story by taking something from the beginning and echoing it at the end. That something can be an image, a line of a dialogue, a prop, specific setting, or even a character that hasn't appeared since the start of the story. Echo doesn't necessarily mean just repeat, although that can be effective as well. Ideally, the repetition at the end highlights a change in the character or helps illuminate the meaning of the story. Now, think with me, think with me. That's exactly what we have here. We have a bookend. We have a bookend. This is not the first time we read of a garden in the biblical narrative, is it? No. In the beginning, there was another garden. And in Adam's fall, that's where everything started to go wrong. And now here towards the end, you see another garden where everything starts to be put back together. Now, you think of the brilliance of that, the beauty of that, the wonder of that from two vantage points, a literary vantage point. Okay, just think about it this way. That theme pulled together over the course of all these books that make up one book, the Bible, spanned over the course of centuries, multiple dozens of different authors, and yet it's a bookend. That's amazing. Think about it also from an historical standpoint. This is not a work of fiction. God did this in the flow of reality, in the writing of history. He bookended it all with gardens. And in the midst of that, in the context of that, Jesus shows forth his commitment to his Father and his commitment to his people and invites us into this garden to learn and listen and watch as we go into dark Gethsemane and we learn of him to pray in the garden. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, it was dark indeed. It may have been a full moon that night, but it was dark. Your disciples were so confused, so weary, so unprepared. You were so sorrowful, the stress, the dread, the agony. But you want us to see this. We confess we don't want to look at this. We don't want to look too hard. It makes us uncomfortable. We pray that you would help us to look and look closer, to listen and listen more attentively, that we would learn of you to pray, to watch and hear, why to pray, to whom we pray, not just how to pray, not just what to pray, but the, the very essentials. Have mercy on us, Jesus. Help us to do that. We pray in your name. Amen.